We all know that teenagers can be moody, but how can you tell the difference between normal teenage reactions and emotions and what may really be early signs of mental health conditions like depression and anxiety? In this episode, we're talking about preteen and teen mental wellness and what you can do as a parent and in the kitchen. Let's dive in. Okay, so today we are talking about teen and preteen mental wellness, and I'm really excited about today's episode. And I know that I feel like we say that a lot, but but what got me so excited about this one is that, you know, my kids are not in this stage of life, right? Mine are six and almost nine. But when we started looking into the research, it just, there was so much good stuff, like positive stuff. And so I'm excited to talk about that today. Yes, I am too. And I'm really excited about this topic because I do have kids this age. I have an 11 and a 14-year-old. And I have had definite thoughts, opinions, ideas on this subject area with this age group. And I've dug a little into the research, but to have a reason to really dig more, I loved having a reason to do that. We're going to talk about the prevalence um, and how that's grown. We're going to talk about signs and symptoms, a lot of which you're going to see are very subtle. Um, We're going to talk about why this age, why this period of development may be a little more susceptible to mental wellness or how this particular age could potentially impact mental wellness down the road right it's it's a crucial time period yes and we are going to look at the role that diet's playing you know I've long thought that the our diet today the typical American diet is a key factor in why we're seeing the increase in prevalence um, in you know mental health issues across all ages but we're going to talk about specifically to teens Right. And then what what are the key things to get to, you know, prevent um, or promote mental wellness? Um, and then easy ways to actually get those nutrients in your preteen and teen? Yes. Yes. We have a guest coming on to speak. She is, you know, she's going to outline kind of like ways that we can incorporate some of those like really brain strong like really potent brain healthy foods but also how we can slowly lay the foundation even starting in the teen years for success later in life yeah if you've gotten the impression from news headlines or just the media in general that teen suicide is on the rise Your hunch is spot on, but also back up a little bit because it starts so much, you know, earlier than that, right? And they're really, we're going to get into the statistics. I'm going to pass that baton off to Carolyn, but there really truly are more depressed and anxious adolescents today than there were a decade ago. Just to give you a heads up, we really aren't talking about suicide in this episode. We are talking about all the things that possibly build up to that point, where we're talking about the more subtle ones that you may, you know, write off as, oh, that's just being a teenager, I guess. Right. So let me give you some stats. This is from NAMI. 50% of all mental illness begins by age 14. That was shocking to me. 
Yeah, especially when you consider that's your daughter. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just a few days into her freshman year of high school, so I'm a little. I shouldn't have brought that up. Yeah. Okay, here's another one. One in six youth aged 6 to 17 experience a mental health disorder each year. Now, one in six seems kind of low or it's it's hard to, it doesn't seem maybe that bad. But what I started doing when I was looking at some of these statistics is to think of it in terms of my child's school. So let's say, and I haven't done the exact math on that, but let's say my child's school has 600 people. That means 100 of those kids is going to have experienced a mental health disorder or some kind of condition each year. That's a lot of kids. Well, it is a lot of kids. Also, when you think about it from the perspective of like, if it's a high school of 600 kids, right? That's almost one entire grade. If you break it out Evenly, yeah. I don't know what's six. Yeah. And actually, her high school is, I guess, probably close to 1,200. So that means 200 kids. And that's just per year. Right. Right. So it could that could be the majority of the an entire class. grade. Yeah. Also, the majority of youth in the juvenile justice system, this is a really sad statistic to me, the majority of the youth in the system have a diagnosable mental health condition. Yeah, so general population, one in six. But then when you look at the youth in the juvenile system, it is 70%. Which I've, you've got to think, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff at play, home life environment, that kind of thing. But mental health has got to play a huge role in them ending up there. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I promise this isn't going to be a depressing episode, though. We're just laying out, laying out the problem, the prevalence. Yeah. And okay, so now that we've gone through those statistics, mm-hmm. if you're thinking in your head, well, wait a minute, what about since the COVID pandemic began, right? Like, surely the prevalence has increased. Yes, and it has. In fact, there was um, an article that was looking at some of that data and they acknowledged anxiety and depression rates rose dramatically across all age groups in 2020 and, and probably still some. But they were most pronounced in young people. And they did a um, poll that, where they gave adolescents a anxiety screening form. And 82.8% of those who took the screening scored moderate to severe. Um, 90% of those who took a depression screening scored moderate to severe. Wow. That's kind of scary. Yeah. That is. Yeah. And, well, the other thing I was going to point out that they note in this article is that these are just the initial effects. You know, we're going to see these changes in mental health that may have progressed more quickly because of COVID and because of the isolation and um, we're going to see those play out over the next decade. Yeah. I mean, I, I can just speak anecdotally about my own experience with my kids. I mean, they're in that pivotal age where you, they need to continue to be socialized, you know, mm-hmm. for a lot of it for just being comfortable around adults or people that they don't know. And, you know, and that is my kids tend to be shy, right? Well, 
the pandemic has definitely taken a toll on that because we have a, you know, aside from the fact that they are back in school, but otherwise we have a very small circle that we've made even smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so well, we've had a lot of, and my son, he's had a ton of anxiety over going back to school. Yeah. Just not, you know, when you're in that routine, but going back to school. Yeah. Um, we've really kind of been working on that. So, but one of the statistics that you shared with me is the average age of onset for anxiety, this blew my mind, is six years old. Yeah. Six. Yeah, I, I feel like now I'm like hyper focused on my first. Well, I grader. feel like now I feel like you can see it. So the average age of onset for a mood disorder is 13 years old, and I will say this is being the parent of a preteen and teenager. This, when they talk about mood disorders, this is the hardest part being a parent: differentiating what is just a hormonal moody teenager and what might actually be something and again we're going to get into symptoms and how to distinguish but it's subtle I mean yeah well and and what you know I can only speak about from what I was reading right in Mm -hmm. preparation for this podcast but you know it it the even the research studies talked about the fact that like it really is hard to sometimes distinguish you know as parents because there is there is that like are they just being moody and irritable or is this something that's you know that's underlying and so then following on the heels of that one of the studies was talking about how that there are a fair amount of mental disorders that begin at this stage of life mm-hmm. but they really aren't diagnosed until later in life and we've talked about that in past episodes about how you know it, there's that the statistic that there's 11 years between when you first start to experience something and you go and you get help. Yeah. So if you think, if we're talking about the average onset being around 14, add 11 years to that. So hopefully they would get help at age 25. Right. You know, but that's still going through college with all that and just navigating a lot of change. Right. Exactly. And still navigating change because that's, in theory, that's, you know, the beginning of your professional, you know, career. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's go through some of the signs of depression and anxiety in this age group. And and to clarify, we're talking about preteens and teens. So we're we're about the age range from ten to seventeen or eighteen, give or take. Yeah. So the hard thing again is there's no definitive checklist. Like if you check three out of the five of these boxes your child has depression or your child has anxiety. So, but they, they do use seven symptoms that they're typically used for diagnosis in kids and teens. But I'm going to list those, but then I'm going to list the ones that are also can also be signs that you do need to pay attention to. So um, they say typically five out of these seven are usually required for diagnosis. So changes in sleep, um, a new onset of guilt which was interesting to me, changes in energy level, changes in concentration, or changes in ability to complete tasks like schoolwork, changes in appetite, changes in motivation, thoughts of suicide. Except for the thoughts of suicide, those others, I mean, with hormones and stuff going on, you know, it, it would it's kind of normal to maybe have one or two of those 
right. going exactly. on in a month. Exactly. Yeah. So, but here are some other um, common symptoms or potential signs of mental, I don't want to say mental illness in kids, but just mental signs of their, that they, you may need to check on their mental wellness. I love that. Something could yeah. be developing. So they have worry about it, everyday matters and it's an ongoing thing or it seems a little excessive or maybe they're hyper-focused and worried about something. Um, severe feelings of self-consciousness, insecurity in social settings. I mean, who doesn't have that? I still have that sometimes in, as an adult, but um, persistent feelings of sadness, anxiety, or emptiness. Um, having trouble with things like sleep, energy, or concentrations. Feeling restless, wound up, or on edge. Becoming fatigued easily. Struggling with concentration, irritability, muscle tension. Hmm. Having difficulty keeping worry levels under control. Struggling with sleep, such as difficulties falling asleep, staying asleep, or not feeling well rested. Um, feeling anxious at the thought of being around others. Um, struggling to talk to other people. Fear of humiliation, embarrassment, rejection, offending people, worried about being judged, feeling anxious days or even weeks ahead of a social event, um, struggling to make and keep friends, blushing or sweating or trembling around others, experiencing nausea, um, no, so not necessarily throwing up, but just feeling sick to your stomach. Um, and, and there's 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 a variety of these. I'm going to link this in our show notes, but... And these these are going to be specific to whatever type of maybe condition may be brewing. But I just wanted felt it was important to share these things because I would say most of those are things you would say, oh, that's just a teenager being a teenager. Well, yeah, and and but I do feel like that list is the second list, right? Mm-hmm. That you went through is it really gives you some concrete things to look for that are subtle, which was the point, but it, it kind of lets you wrap your hands around something that is just a little bit more concrete compared to like change in sleep or change in energy or change in concentration, because those are, I think at least those are harder. You might see those in a week or you might see those like every three weeks, but unless you're that parent who is writing it down, which I've gone through phases like that with my kids where I, you know, write it down because I want to see if it's a pattern or not. Mostly like when I was going through my divorce, I, mm-hmm. you know, I was hyper-focused on their mental wellness. But, um, you know, it's harder to keep track of like what change is. Yes. You know. Yes. Um, the, this article, and again, I'll link it in the show notes, it, it's from um, Penn State Medicine. Um, but they also end with sharing that it's much more treatable and much more common than you think in teens. And I've kind of wondered that, like if you catch it early and get them started in getting help earlier, you know, rather than waiting those 11 years, right? you know, maybe you get control of it um, or just become more aware and capable of knowing when you need additional help. 
Well, and if we can just hearken back to the last episode of our first season where we interviewed Dr. Andrea Hendricks and we talked about how do you know if you need help. And yeah. and what I'm recalling right now from that episode that I think is really pertinent here is that you don't have to meet set criteria to get help, right? So your child doesn't have to, you know, meet all of these, you know, like five out of 10 or whatever, seven out, right. of, out of 10 to warrant you know, getting any type of help. And then the other point that Dr. Hendricks made that that I think is like really clicked in my brain and I never thought of it this way before is that if you going and getting help doesn't fix everything. Really what it's doing is it's giving you the tools to live life. So take that to the teenage years, right? Even if they don't have a diagnosable condition, but you go and you get them help. What they're really learning there are skills to live life, to cope, to manage, to be more self-aware about their feelings. And frankly, I would love that in any and every teenager, to be more self-aware. Yeah. Imagine learning those skills at that age. I mean, it took me until I was in my <laughs> 30s. <laughs> okay. Well, I, and one last thing. I do love that, too, because I feel like we look at, like, well, they're not that bad. I mean, they're not suicidal. Again, right. that phrase, that bad, you know, going back to Dr. Hendrick's episode, how bad is bad enough? Let's talk about why this particular age range, this preteen, teenage years, is such a critical time period for them while they're in it. Yeah. Um, but then also down the road into adulthood. Yes. Okay. So I'm not going to go too sciencey on you, but... Your brain is still developing um, until you reach adulthood. Like you're, it's still getting all the circuitry and communication pathways right. It's still creating new neurons and cells. And a key area where this is actively happening in the adolescent brain is called the hippocampus. Um, and the hippocampus can influence behavior and cognition and just proper brain functioning in general. And we know that, we've known for a while, that when adults go through any kind of stressful period, there's a direct impact on the hippocampus, the cells in the hippocampus or the communication between the cells. And what they found is that adolescents who have stressful periods, which, I mean, Let's go back to your teenage years. Like, who oh, isn't? Yeah. I mean, it was a drama every day. Well, I'm living it right now with my 14-year-old. You know, oh, yeah. like, I don't even know, you know. The half of it, probably. The mood changes by the hour. You know, the plans for the weekend change by the minute. I mean, I can't keep up, you know, but it's all over the place. It very, a lot of extremes. You know? Yes, really, a lot really of really high, really bummed out. Yeah, so. That's stress. <laughs> that is, But yeah. then you've got the physical development. You've got the hormone changes. That's a stress on the body as well. So all that to say is the stress can, ongoing stress during the adolescence can also be impacting the normal hippocampus development. And what they found is this can potentially last into adulthood. Um, so you want to pay attention to or you want to support brain development during the adolescent years to, you know, promote their optimal mental well-being during those years, but also long term. Right. Down the line. 
Well, it just highlights, like, we tend to think, okay, we know the brain is developing, you know, when they're in the womb, and we know there's still brain development going on, you know, through those early first few years. But, you know, we get to late elementary, middle school, you kind of assume, like, okay, the brain's developed, now it's just managing behavior and keeping them on track and keeping them, you know, doing the right thing. But we forget that their brains are still developing. They are not mature brains yet. Yeah. And, some and we are, and influence things influence that. And some are going off to college still developing their brains, depending on the age that they go off to college. But anyway. Yes. We do let's that. let's talk about um what it is about the typical American diet, the typical teen, preteen American diet that is problematic. I wanna yes. get the bad stuff out of the way. Get the bad stuff? Okay. Well, and I have long, and not necessarily just pertaining to teens, but I have had this long-standing personal opinion that, or thought, idea that um, all today's diet, all the processed foods, all, you know, we aren't getting enough fruits and vegetables, all the added sugar, just the unhealthy stuff and toxins and that kind of thing, um, as I've been watching over, you know, the past five to 15 years, like noticing that mental health prevalence is increasing, I've long wondered, like, I think diet has got to be playing a role in this. Yeah. And, and there is, there's evidence to suggest that. There, There is. I mean, so one of the problems, like you said, is, is processed food. And, um, and I always struggle with that because so many foods that are processed – are actually like good choices you know like you think about like the whole wheat tortillas that you know i'm i'm buying at trader joe's or um you know even yogurt some people might say that's processed but anyway when we're talking about like the more processed foods the snack foods the you know um the junk the junk food like so part of the problem is that they are you know, typically high in sodium right and there was this study that was done at uab that basically found that the that high sodium is also then low in potassium right and potassium and sodium balance Mm -hmm. each other out but that high sodium often kids who were getting that diet they didn't they didn't necessarily have depressive symptoms when they started the study but the higher the sodium that those teens the ones consuming higher sodium yes exactly the ones consuming the higher sodium when they did follow up they were more likely to have depressive that's interesting and sodium isn't one that like immediately came to mind when I was we were outlining this episode we were thinking added sugars and that kind of thing right and just for people who don't know typically the more processed a food is the more sodium it's going to be higher in sodium but a food loses potassium the more processed it is so your whole foods like your fruits and vegetables or stuff they're going to usually you know be a good source of potassium and very naturally low in sodium Right. The other end of the spectrum, as you go more processed, more processed you're going to lose that potassium and sodium is going to increase. Right. Exactly. So just looking at that, like junk food intake, that imbalance in teens, it showed that they might not have it now. They might not be showing depressive symptoms, but down the line um, at follow up, they were more likely to show depressive symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, I found some stuff just looking at food choices in addition to processed foods or looking at their teens' consumption. And 
um, less than 50% of teens consume the recommended amount of fruits and vegetables and protein and healthy fats. Um, their intake of unhealthy fats and sugars, though, is well above, and sodium is well above those recommended um, levels. And, you know, I think one thing that's important to remember is that all these unhealthy foods, on top of not getting the healthy ones that you need, also are, they're impacting the gut health. And, you know, as we talked yes. about in episode two, and the gut I remember us reading something. I think we shared it on that episode. The gut is like the puppeteer of, of all the, the things going on in the brain. Yeah. And it's hard with teens and even preteens. I mean, I see it in my own children already. And they're in elementary school. They start to become more autonomous in not just their food choices, but in their feeding of themselves. And teens are absolutely there. So there is that element of like if they are not making the healthier choices, which happens, but you know it's it's shoving out the healthy options, right? So like the more unhealthy foods that they're eating, it's creating less room for their their yeah. healthy foods. Well, it's like that replacement factor and their independence. That's what's right. hard, you know. Right. I you know you can control so much when they're preschool and el- elementary yes. and even you know some you know, middle school, but then when they start having, you know, maybe earning their own money through babysitting or, you know, or have, they get a car, yeah, they, they get can a go car. through the yes. drive through. Yes. I mean, it's so, and I'm not there. You are. Um, I, I don't want, you know, listeners to feel like they just need to throw their hands up and do nothing no. because there's nothing they can do. There are plenty of things they can do, but also as a parent, I think it's important to remind listeners, like, just try to make an impact where you can, you know, like you can't, you can't control it all. And just so pick your meals. Yeah. And I love influence. I love what our guest says about that. She really simplified things and really took a lot of stress off of me as a parent. She did. To just feeding your kids. It was like a combination of sharing wonderful information, but also because she has that like hindsight is 2020 mm-hmm. view. Because She's got grandkids in their 20s. That she was, it was like a partial like coaching session. Because yeah. she had a, she has a great perspective from where she is now. Yeah. So you'll get more of that down the line. But um, so what do they need to eat? Like exactly. And what are the, what's your biggest bang for your buck you know like as a parent what do we really need to focus on outside of trying to minimize those less healthy things I mean I I feel like we should each give our own personal opinions here (laughs) because well because there's science that supports all like that supports a lot of different nutrients right and the one that I took away the most from when you and I were prepping for this episode was the value of protein Mm. and what I thought was so fascinating was that, like, we, you know, we talk about protein for, like, supporting muscles, right? And I think about it with teens, especially active teens, like, to support their muscle growth mm-hmm. and just their general development. But protein also plays a really key role in those feel-good brain compounds, those neurotransmitters. Well, and then it's... a great source of a lot of those B vitamins, B6, B12, 
Um, but then also some of the minerals, selenium and zinc and iron, and all of those are involved. Right. You know. And, and like iron is really important for females. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that it's not important for boys. It is, but it's it's the the female needs are higher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, selenium is pretty hard to get otherwise. Yeah. Um, and then zinc. I mean, zinc is zinc also plays a really key role in supporting your immune system, which is important, you know, for yeah. kids at that age. I mean, it's important for everybody. But um, you know, I just found it so fascinating to really understand that the different amino acids in proteins are like key for helping those neurotransmitters even be made in your body we forget about that yeah and that was the part that i was like oh right you know now you also need those other things you were saying like you need vitamins and minerals that are in that's in protein you also need you know like vitamin c Mm -hmm. um but that was the big takeaway for me as i was like protein is important yeah yeah um so for me, I think it reemphasized the importance when I was going through the research. It, they, it reemphasized the importance of fruits and vegetables, but not because they're fruits and vegetables necessarily, because of those bioactive compounds in them, yeah. um, the, the phytochemicals. And I kind of am looking at it from kind of an inflammation standpoint. Um, we know that inflammation, chronic inflammation can make existing issues worse but also anything anything that's a stress you know whether it's in the environment or whether it's you know with you know conflict between a friend or you know any kind of stress you know a big test or anything like that um which we've already said as adolescents have a lot of stress going on um creates um, free radicals and can cause damage um, within the brain, within the body, and just creates kind of a low level of inflammation. And um, getting those phytochemicals along with like your antioxidant vitamins, like vitamin C and stuff, um, are so key in kind of tamping that down and kind of keeping further damage from occurring. Right. Yeah. They're mopping up those like harmful free yeah. radical compounds and just really like supporting the good stuff. Yeah. So I know before you and I have talked like off, uh, you know, not during a recording, um, mostly like when we've, we've each been working on other articles. Um, we've talked a little bit about how you have rather that there are some particular fruits and vegetables. Like, yes, more fruits and vegetables, please. But also going back to the, all right, like parents, we can't, we can't do it all. So like I naturally think the, you know, the brighter colored ones, right, are going to have more. Mm-hmm. But I know you've looked at the research. Yeah, Can I you really give us kinda, like a short list of like I fruits and vegetables it, you think are really important? If you want like, like I'm all about efficiency. So like yeah. what's the most bang, like yes. they aren't going to eat five fruits and vegetables most days. Let, no. Let's be honest. So Correct. if they're only going to eat two or three here's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Yes, that's what these and, people need to hear. Yeah, and I divided into three categories. Um, berries. Great. Leafy greens. Great. Cruciferous vegetables. Cruciferous are the ones like broccoli and cauliflower. I tell people, like, if it stinks while it's cooking, that that's typically a sign it's a cruciferous vegetable. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really But when I looked at all the research from an inflammation perspective, but 
um, those were the three categories. Like I almost got sick of seeing them pop up in the research. Um, those were the three main categories. And they're so beneficial to reducing inflammation because of how high those antioxidants are. And right. so it's really those antioxidants, that they're just the powerhouses. And a lot of it is not necessarily the vitamins and minerals, um, but the phytochemicals like flavonoids um, and isothiocyanates in the cruciferous vegetables. They're the, all the words yeah. that we have spent Almost. years trying to figure out how to say correctly. Yeah. And we still might not even be there. But yes, those, those. So the cool part though is that those compounds are not typically easily destroyed when you're like cooking foods. Mm-hmm. So raw, cooked, you know, roasted, blanched, whatever. Yeah. All good choices. They're usually pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Berries by far. And we're going to talk about one particular berry in, you know, in our interview that is just like, gosh. superstar. Super concentrated in those. If I can get that, a serving of those in each day, I feel like I'm doing good. Leafy greens are cruciferous. But, you know, if you're, they don't eat that, then it's not like it's, you're not doing any, you're not, if they don't eat that, it's okay. You know, those are, those are really great ones, stellar ones, but all fruits and vegetables are good. Right. Well, and so here's the other, the other thing is the other nutrient that we noticed was, you know, cropping up was fiber, which goes back to your gut gut health comment, which goes back to more fruits and vegetables as well. So fruits and vegetables are giving you those awesome phytochemicals. They're also giving you the fiber, um, but also making, you know, making other choices like choosing whole grains over refined grains. I'm not saying exclusively because like, my kids are really on a, you know, white pasta kick right now. <laughs> but, I mean, like, there are other swaps, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Oh, you know. and there's one other, one other nutrient that I've got to mention. I can't believe I didn't think of it before now, and that's omega-3s. You know, I'm big on omega-3s, the omega-3 oh, yeah. fatty acids. Um, and most kids are not getting enough, you know, unless they're getting fish one to two times a week. And even, you know, then they may not the fish source isn't a concentrated source of that they may not be getting enough but that is so crucial for brain development it's really crucial for all ages but and I think I've mentioned earlier that I have found it particularly beneficial for my son who has ADHD yes and you do it mostly with him through supplements yes because I'm not a big fish person. Right. But the nice part, uh, the reason I bring that up is that it doesn't have to be through right. fish. Right. Yeah. It can be through supplements. So I love being able well. to check the box with that supplement. Right. Because that's like, that's what, what works yeah. for him. So let's transition to our interview now. Well, I'm super excited about our next guest who's going to help us dive a little bit deeper into some of these nutrients and bioactive compounds that we've just talked about. Yeah. Um, So welcome, Kitty, to our podcast episode. Um, So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background on Kitty first before we before we pepper her with a bazillion questions. So Kitty Breyer is a registered dietitian, and she has her master's degree in nutrition communications from Boston University. She started her career out in the publishing industry, writing for, you know, magazine names like Good Housekeeping that we're all really familiar with. 
And then over the years, she has transitioned more into like an advisory and spokesperson work, which is actually what brings her today because she is the spokesperson for the Wild Blueberry Association of North America. Um, Kitty lives in Maine with her family. And one of her specialties is translating that really challenging science into tidbits that we all can actually understand and put into actionable advice. And she is going to help us do that today. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, and she does. She's a parent herself. They're, they're grown and older than either of ours. Briarly has um, kids in elementary, and I have an 11 and 14-year-old. Tell us, how old are your kids? Oh, goodness. My youngest just turned 21. <laughs> and my, so that's my daughter, and um, my son is 24. Okay. So well, it's I, been a little while, but it's not like you forget how it was. Exactly. It really sticks in your head. And I love it because you're kind of on the other side of it. Um, so oh, yeah. you can give us all your wisdom. Uh. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll try. <laughs> I'm excited to have you because I've been intrigued why wild blueberries specifically ever since I started looking into their research several years ago. And from a personal perspective, my kids are not big vegetable eaters. Um, so I really rely on fruits in particular to get those key nutrients and phytochemicals. Um, and adding a wild, a serving of wild blueberries, um, it seems like one of the best ways to maximize those benefits. But Kitty, can you share with us, with our listeners, what exactly makes wild blueberries unique from other fruits or even other produce? Yeah, so I can easily get into that, but I wanted to speak to your vegetable thing really quick. I totally understand that. Most kids are a little on the picky side about certain vegetables. I lucked out because mine seemed to like a lot of them. In fact, funny story, in third grade, my son's class had to like make a picture of their favorite vegetable uh, or their favorite food, and he drew an artichoke. Oh, my god! <laughs> oh, wow. Isn't I that the most that. bizarre thing? I, I and the teacher that. was like, this is strange. You know, <laughs> where's the pizza? Anyway, um, but so I lucked out in that respect. But I think using fruit to make up those deficiencies or the lack of quantity of produce in the diet is totally the smart way to go and kids seem to like fruit better it's sweeter um and i think the key there is to choose things that aren't super processed you don't want the super processed versions of the fruit so you want to get to the whole fruit or the plain frozen fruit and that's where you know wild blueberries has a really good story to tell because nothing needs to be added it doesn't, it's not sweetened. You know, these berries are picked and they are flash frozen within 24 hours and they don't have any sugar added. They don't have anything added. They're just plain blueberries and yet they taste really, really sweet. And they also have a more um, blueberry-ish flavor, I would say, if you try them because there's less water in them. So they're not like the um, regular blueberries that are called a cultivated blueberry or a high bush blueberry. Wild blueberries are what's called a low bush blueberry and the berries are, themselves are much smaller. And you know, thinking about what's inside those berries, I tend to describe them as 
because they're small, they're sort of like a concentrated blueberry. It's not that what is in them is so vastly different from high bush blueberries, although they are higher in some um, nutrients that I'll explain in a minute. But if you think about less water and packed into a smaller you know, uh, space, then you can understand why these wild blueberries are so potent in terms of nutrition, but also in flavor. So most people, when they try them, you know, next to each other or try them at a trade show or a PR event or something at a fair, they're, they're blown away because they are like, this is so blueberry-ish compared to a regular blueberry. Yeah. So most people really like them. We are not talking about like a random bush in your grandmother's backyard yes. that you might have gone to to pick them off. And that, because I was, it took me a while to grasp this. Wild blueberries are a specific type am i correct in that yeah can you define that own, for they're their own species okay so yeah and that example that you gave is exactly what i talk about when i'm talking to the public and a lot of people think it is they're like well i have these in my yard and i say oh where do you live and they're like well texas and i'm like not really because <laughs> wild blueberries the species that we're talking about the low bush blueberry you know they grow about a foot off the ground if your bush is taller than that it is not a wild blueberry plant and they only grow in places where the glacial soils were um, where the glaciers receded and left this soil that a lot of plants don't really like but wild blueberries loved it rocky and kind of a tough environment so they grow in Maine and eastern Canada and Quebec primarily can you share really quick why it's so important that they get flash frozen within those first 24 hours and what oh what yeah that does for, um, for nutrient preservation absolutely yeah um you know compared to foods that have to travel a long distance in a fresh state um you know wild blueberries don't travel well so they had to figure out what are we going to do with these so that we can you know increase the market and have more people get to try them. So they had to be frozen. And luckily, you know, you, you sometimes talking about the value of freezing something at the height of its ripeness and readiness, that's also when its nutrients are typically the most, um, the highest level. Uh, wild blueberries are not those that tend to be impacted as much by freezing. So things like the anthocyanins, for example, are minimally impacted by freezing, whereas, um, you know, something like vitamin C might be more impacted by freezing. Right. So. Vitamin C is like, is not as stable. Anthocyanins right. um, are, are more stable, but yeah. you know, in general, the, the, I just want to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying in general, the thing about frozen fruits and vegetables is that they typically are frozen when they are at their peak ripeness. So they're really locking yeah. in all of those amazing nutrients and wild blueberries are, uh, you know, an exceptional right. example Right, right. Same story. Yeah. And, and and it's so quick. I mean, you have to do that quickly. Yeah. So, yeah. So for our listeners who don't spend a lot of time reading research studies, can you tell us uh, what anthocyanins are? And I also want to add that all three of us have the luxury of having um, higher degrees in nutrition. So we've learned how to say that word. It's It's not that easy to say. So if you don't know how to say it, don't worry about it. Well, and maybe speak to, because anthocyanins, you know, I'm going to mess it up, um, are, in the, are a type of phytochemical. So if you can maybe speak right. to 
what makes blueberry wild blueberries unique in when it comes to phytochemicals in them. Okay, um, yeah. Well, the primary phytochemical. So anthocyanins are the primary phytochemical in or phytonutrient in wild blueberries, and they are also the um, the substance that gives the blueberries their purple blue color. Um, it's found in the skin, but also a little bit in the flesh of the blueberry. And um, yeah, very stain promoting. <laughs> so if you get that jam on your white shirt, it's pretty much all over. But um, yeah, blue teeth, the whole nine yards, those are the anthocyanins. And those are compounds that have an antioxidant um, capacity in the body that help, you know, combat free radicals, but also help cells and the body in general defend itself from um, damage over time. And um, so a lot of consumers are familiar with what an antioxidant is. They've heard that term before, but they are less familiar with what an anthocyanin is. And, and really antioxidants come in different forms. So it's just a, it's just a different way to further break down that whole antioxidant category of phytonutrients. To recap that wild blueberries are more potent in comparison to other fruits and vegetables, right? In a good way. In yeah. a good way, yes. more potent. <laughs> and then yeah. in the body, they're also more powerful. So it's like a it's a double a double benefit. Yeah. That's a great way to to summarize that because that is absolutely the way to think about it. Not only do they have more concentrated nutrients, so some of them are more concentrated, um, but yes, their power to bring about health effects in the body, um, or at least be measured as far as the potential to bring about health effects in the body is greater. So yeah, it's a good, it's a good story. And, you know, honestly, most people really like them. It's not like a hard sell to get people to add wild blueberries to their diet. You just have to make sure you're buying wild when you're looking at blueberries in the freezer section, because it's not always easy to tell that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are vastly more bags of regular blueberries than there are wild. So you specifically have to look for the words wild on the packaging. Um, whether that's in the ingredient list or on the front of the package. Yeah. Or you'll be getting regular ones. Can we talk about snacks? Research suggests it's important to include nutrient-rich snack-like foods. Kids love snacks. But that including nutrient-rich ones can be, you know, is a good way to support brain development and kind of lay the foundation for healthy adulthood and just healthy eating habits. Can you share some nutrient-rich snack ideas? Um, that you yeah. have? So what are we looking at for a snack? Well, often you're looking for a protein, um, some sort of healthy fat, maybe some fiber. So thinking about those things, those all actually are good brain, brain boosting nutrients as well. So I would rely on what are your, what is your kid like? And often I think it's helpful if the kid helps if the child gets to help prepare it and, and you know, you, you know how that is. They, they're more invested in eating it. It's done, done just the way they want, regardless of if that seems weird to you or not. Um, so if they want, you know, peanut butter with not a banana, but a piece of avocado on it, well, 
who's to say that's not, not okay, right? So getting, letting them help do that, um, I think is a big part of it, if you have time. Um, but so my ideas that I typically would do would be a whole grain bread with something like a seed butter, something easy that a child could do themselves. You know, after a yeah. certain age, it's not hard to spread peanut butter or seed butter on mm -hmm. a piece of bread and then put whatever fruit they want on it. Could be dried fruit, could be fresh fruit, could be frozen wild blueberries, could be anything, a cut up peach. Um, so there you're getting nutrients, you're getting some protein, you're getting fiber, and that's a really good package. It could just be one slice of bread with that stuff on it, right? Simple, easy, quick, good. Um, the other thing is a smoothie. Lots of kids love smoothies. You can make small smoothies. If you have more than one child, that's even better because you can make one and just divide it between them. So smoothies are a good one to do for a breakfast, but also for a snack. Um, and you can even have it as the adult too. You know, you can like finish off the, the blender full if it's a little too much for your child because it's all good food. It's yogurt, it's um, fruit. And wild blueberries do shine in smoothies. I can tell you, you need less, you need less ice if you use a frozen fruit. Yes, I love that. I, I do not like ice in my smoothies. I don't Me either. either. Yeah. It always is granular and it makes, it dilutes it. And I mean, unless you like it diluted, I just add more milk if I need. But um, so smoothies are a top one. And I think most kids like them. They even get them at school for their school lunches. A lot of times I've noticed um, at the salad bar, there's often a pitcher of smoothies. Really? Yeah. I, I heard that at um, a trade show. Um, That's fantastic. With, with lunch, you know, dietitians who coordinate school lunches and organize them. And they said, oh, we put wild blueberries on our salad bar, but we also make our morning smoothies with it. Wow. And I I don't think I that's happened in Alabama in yet. No, I don't think we've progressed <laughs> that far, but I'm inspired now. I, know, I love that. I yeah. hadn't thought about, um, I always forget about fruit with meats. And for kids like my kids' age who, mm -hmm. who really like fruits and they can be particular about their proteins, mm -hmm. um, mine are very particular about their meat proteins, that would be another vehicle to potentially you know, sweeten the deal and get them, you yeah. know, get them into it. Sure. I, I like with pork tenderloin, I used to do that a lot. It's so, cooked so quickly. I would just cut it into medallions, saute it with a little onion, and I would just throw in whatever the fruit was. So often it was apples, but you could absolutely make a little pan sauce with wild blueberries. Um, you could make it with peaches. You know, it doesn't have to be the traditional apple thing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. some, and some seasoning, of course. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it, a little butter. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Just a little bit of that. Exactly. Yeah. You, gotta make, you gotta make a sauce, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Well, pan sauce is a, is your friend, but you know, one thing I did not talk about was why wild blueberries are good for kids' brains. And yeah. there's so much research. So Carolyn, you had mentioned that you saw some research about wild blueberries. There is more and more coming out all the time on brain health and brain health seems to be this topic that everybody is suddenly more interested in. I could see why people my age in their 50s would be like, oh, geez, I got to start taking care of my brain. Well, you actually need to feed your brain from day one. <laughs> um, and so doing, giving a little thought to your child's brain health as school is starting and 
you know, this is a thing where wild blueberries are really shining these days, not just with young kids, but with teenagers as well. And so if you're interested, I just wanted to highlight a couple of the findings from some of these studies um, on cognition and children and wild blueberries. So we talked a little bit about anthocyanins and antioxidants and, you know, wild blueberries are you know, overflowing with these anthocyanins, but other foods um, have antioxidant power as well, obviously. What's interesting is that although researchers don't really know how these compounds impact, exactly how they impact brain health and cognition and mental health, they can see that they have some sort of impact. And so digging down into that is not something that has happened really yet. I mean, the results haven't happened yet. Um, it appears that this group of chemicals called flavonoids, um, which is a really diverse group of bioactive compounds in a large variety of foods, predominantly fruits and veggies, coffee, tea, things like that. Um, it, it, it appears that flavonoids are are central to this impact that these foods might have. And, um, you know, in wild blueberries, anthocyanins are the predominant flavonoid. The Wild Blueberry Association of North America focuses their in research interests on anthocyanins in our product because we do think that that has um, most of the impact. Now, when we eat these foods, it matters what happens to those things in the body anthocyanins and other bioactive compounds break down extensively. So those break down extensively into these things that they call metabolites. And there are many, many different ones. And these anthocyanins and their metabolites collect in different parts of the body and are prevalent in your body. They hang in there for a while. That, that's kind of nice. It means that it's good to have a constant supply, but it's not the end of the world. If you only ate vegetables on Tuesday and didn't eat any on Wednesday, you're still going to be able to get those benefits. So these breakdown products from anthocyanins are believed to be what researchers think um, wild blueberries are giving to mental health. What I like about what you said when you looked at the research where there were some immediate effects and then some, you know, down the line is that when I when I put away my dietitian hat and I like really just zone in on my my parenting life, it's nice to know that if I go through the extra effort on Tuesday or Wednesday morning, it's going to pay off. But if I really bomb it on Thursday and Friday mornings, whatever it was that I did on Tuesday and Wednesday still might have some effect later in the week because we can't we can't be on seven days a week. I can't. I mean. No. Feel but free to roast perfect? me for that. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and that's such a good point for people trying to feed their kids well. You don't have to be perfect. What you're doing, those little things you're doing or instilling some good habits in them that, you know, they don't have to happen every day, but they will stick with them and you know, what you're doing most days is what matters. I've recommended to several people, and I remind myself to just to kind of look at it from a maybe week perspective rather than yeah. a day. I tend to take more of an all-or-nothing approach if I look at it from the day. But when you look at it from a week and what you want, you know, the number of family meals you want to get in, the fruits, the vegetables, that kind of thing, it's a lot more doable. 
It is. You can't be perfect. You can't. We can't. You <laughs> I can't. can't. <laughs> no. Well, it is, and that's why you have to think about your own nutrition as well, right? It's not just applying to kids; it's applying to all of us. Yeah. What you're doing on a daily basis or nearly daily matters. But if you're not, if you miss a day, it's not the end of the world. So, it's it's a relief to people to yeah. not have to think about that. I mean, this was awesome. Fabulous. I yeah. loved it. You gave great advice. We talked about okay. some awesome studies. And I feel like hopefully we made parents feel more empowered and less anxious about what they, you know, what they can be doing. This has been such great information. I mean, it, it from, really has. From a nutrition and a parent standpoint for me um thank you so much for being with us can you share really quickly where our listeners can get more information on wild blueberries or some of the research associated with you know wild blueberries or other good brain healthy foods the wild blueberry association has a website and it is wildblueberries.com very simple and people can go there and one of our new things that we have is a brain health food guide called Cognition Kitchen, which is downloadable. And it's got information, not just about wild blueberries, but a a variety of food. Um, There's recipes in there, there's science, there's references. It's really a nice little guide and it's free. But definitely the Wild Blueberry site also has many, many, many recipes, including, geez, probably a hundred smoothie recipes. Uh, So if you're looking for recipes, if you're looking for references to the science or more information, wildblueberries.com is where to go. Thank you so much, Kitty. I hope you you. have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. It was so much fun talking to you guys. (laughs) Bye. Today's episode is sponsored by Wild Blueberries. They're a trade association of growers and processors of wild blueberries from Maine and Canada. You can learn more about them by going to wildblueberries.com. Thank you so much for joining us for the Happy Eating Podcast. I'm Briarly Horton. And I'm Carolyn Williams. If you liked this week's episode, then don't forget to rate and leave us a review on iTunes. And be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss a new episode. We can't wait to have you back at our table next week for a brand new episode. Bye. The contents discussed in the Happy Eating Podcast, such as advice, studies, text, graphics, images, and other material discussed or presented on the site or podcast are for informational purposes only. Content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Happy Eating Podcast. If you are in crisis or think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 8255, to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you are located outside the United States, call your local emergency line immediately.